0: Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The Book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do. And how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do When she really puts her mind to it, it also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day.
1: This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. (laughs) Welcome back to the Gospel Feast podcast. We are actively preparing for Season 3 on the Book of Ruth. And you know, I have been amazed at the wealth and the pearls of wisdom that are in the short four-chapter book. But we do need a historian to help open it up for us. And I promise you, it will be worth the wait. Now this episode is a seventh episode, so in honor of Eastern thinking, we are resting from our normal topics and enjoying questions from our listeners. And thank you all for sending them in. Read, our first question comes from Mohai of Bengaluru, India. And he asks, Why aren't Mormons vegetarians considering they have their inspired word of wisdom? Oh, that is a good question, Reed. Can we talk about that?
0: Boy, we've got some smart people that will listen to this show. Wow. Thank you for that question, I guess. The Word of Wisdom is kind of confusing. I guess it is and it isn't. If you really stop and analyze it, it's kind of confusing.
1: Let's start from the very beginning. For those that don't even know what the Word of Wisdom is, there is a book called The Doctrine and Covenants, and it is a series and collection of revelations from the Lord given through the early prophets of the church. Now, the 89th chapter of that book has come to be known uh, among the Mormons, or among the members of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, as the Word of Wisdom.
0: We call it the Word of Wisdom, because the very first thing that the Lord said to Joseph Smith when he gave him this section, which is what we call these revelations, sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, he said right from the start, "...a word of wisdom for the benefit of the council of high priests, assembled in Kirtland, and the Church, and also the saints in Zion." And where it kind of throws people that don't really understand our church or culture is the next verse says, to be sent greeting, not by commandment or constraint, but by revelation and the word of wisdom showing forth the order and will of God in the temporal salvation of all saints in the last days. So it says right away that it's a principle given for wisdom, but not as a commandment.
1: No, it's interesting. So it's more like the Lord in his capacity as a counselor. And so he's basically opened it by saying, here is something very intelligent you should listen to.
0: Yes, for your temporal salvation. So specifically for your earth life, the salvation of your earth life. We don't really see it that way today. We really do see it as a commandment. And we really strive to follow this as though it were a commandment. And to be honest, Elder Packer said that in our day, it is now a commandment. So, we try and treat it that way, but it does have some very incredible advice in it, some rather groundbreaking health advice that I believe has been the reason that most latter-day saints have the healthier life, and certainly those that follow the word of wisdom do feel like their days are healthier. Well,
1: I know there have been studies done, and not specifically just on members of the church, but people following similar diet or similar lifestyle, and they do have fewer health issues lower health costs, and typically longer lives. That's something that on the offset you wouldn't know. But the Lord would, having infinite knowledge as he does, he would know, do this, and then in 40, 50 years you'll see the benefit. But we've done studies now to prove
0: that. I think that's very true. Specifically to address Mohi's question, there is a section in the Word of Wisdom that deals with meat. And it is a little bit confusing the way it reads in the text now. Not so much in the culture. I think that the culture of the church understands it correctly, but I don't think it's been recorded exactly as it was intended to be recorded, and I think that's where the confusion comes. If you go and read the Doctrine and Covenants section 89, the Word of Wisdom, as Joseph Smith recorded it, and you can also get it in the editions that Brigham Young released. I believe I also have in my collection the edition that Wilford Woodruff released, So you can see there's these various editions. In our modern edition, it was altered just a little bit. Oh, do tell. In about 1921, the church became aware that some of the grammar in the scriptures needed a little bit of work. I really believe personally this can be connected back to Joseph Smith and the loss of the 116 pages. As people probably know, when the Lord was having the prophet translate the Book of Mormon, he had gotten through 116 manuscript pages. And then he had allowed them to be borrowed so that they could be used as proof of his talents or his interpretive abilities. And those pages got lost. And the Lord commanded the prophet not to retranslate them, but to take an appendix to the Book of Mormon and put it at the front to replace the missing pages. Okay, what happened is the loss of those pages so affected Joseph Smith that he was severely chastised for losing them and for letting them out of his sight. And it really affected him. You can read the chastisement in the early part of the Doctrine and Covenants, in the early sections. It's very harsh. And the prophet felt really terrible about what had happened. After that, when he would receive a revelation and he would write it down, there are stories in church history where people with more education than he had in English and in in other studies, my favorite stories, particularly in connection with William McClellan. William had read one of the revelations and told Joseph that he needed to improve some of the grammar and punctuation. And Joseph looked at him and said, do you have any idea who you're editing?
1: That is actually very funny. If you truly believe these are revelations from the Lord, you're going to go up to him and say, you know, you've got a typo here. Um, well, sure.
0: And I, I think that he'd gotten so shocked with losing those pages. He was very careful. That, that, that
1: He was not going to in any way, shape or form endanger the word of the Lord. No.
0: No. And so consequently, the earlier revelations didn't have maybe as fine a punctuation as they could have. The earlier Book of Mormons weren't scripture versed like we use today, and they were kind of in need of a little polish. And so some of the later prophets, particularly around 1921, they did have some grammarians and English people go over the scriptures and try and kind of help maybe clean them up. In fact, there's one quote where they said, why can't we have the best scriptures we can possibly have?
1: Well, and the words by no means have been altered. It's merely the under- helping understand. In English, we have commas and we have periods and places for a specific reason to help us understand the phrasing, what the Lord's trying to say.
0: So there are two places in section 89 where punctuation was altered from what Joseph had. Oh, interesting. Yes. And whenever I share this with people, I like to jump to the later one and then go back to the earlier one because I think it makes more sense. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is, I want you to listen to the way Doctrine and Covenants 89 verses 14 and 15 and 16 sound. All grain is ordained for the use of man and of beasts to be the staff of life, not only for man, but for the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven and all wild animals that run and creep on the earth. And these hath God made for the use of man only in times of famine and excess of hunger. Okay. So when you read that, it's saying, All grain is ordained for the use of man and beasts to be the staff of life, and not only for man, but for the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven and all the wild things that creep on the earth. And these hath God made for the use of man only in times of famine and excess of hunger.
1: So... From what it's saying, we're only allowed to have these grains when we're hungry.
0: Yeah, isn't that how that reads? At least how the way it sounds. But that's not the way the punctuation was when Joseph recorded it. This is how it went when he said it. All grain is ordained for the use of man and of beasts to be the staff of life, not only for man, but for the beasts of the field and fowls of heaven and all wild animals that run and creep on the earth. And these hath God made for the use of man only in times of famine and excessive hunger. So because they put the comma in this place, it's actually a semicolon. It confuses the meaning from being that the grain is what's being written about. But the verse is actually saying that in times of starvation or hunger, it's okay to eat any wild animal that runs or creeps on the earth. This would include rats, spiders, you know. If you're starving to death, the Lord is saying you can't let yourself die Go and eat whatever so you can catch.
1: Everything at that moment is fair game.
0: Yes, that's right. Yes. In times of hunger. But with the semicolon, it puts the emphasis on the grain. And that isn't how it was it read until 21. Okay. Now, the reason that I wanted to start with that one is it's so obvious. You go, oh my gosh, we know grain is for man. We know that. So this can't be true. Okay. Now, we want to go to the part about meat. Because it's the current speculation among members of the church right now that we should only be eating meat in the winter. And when you look again at the punctuation and you take out the punctuation that was put in in 1921 and take it back to what Joseph Smith had, it's actually clearer. So take a listen to this. Let me first read it the way it, it reads with the punctuation. And then I'll read it with the punctuation removed. Every herb in the season thereof and every fruit in the season thereof and all these things to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. Yea, flesh also of beasts and fowls of the air... I, the Lord, have ordained for the use of men with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they should be used sparingly. And it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used, only in times of winter or of cold or of famine.
1: Okay, so that's the punctuation now. Yes. Basically indicating these things are for your use, but sparingly and only in the winter if you can help it.
0: That's what it says. That's what it says. Let's put the punctuation back to what Joseph Smith had and see if it doesn't change the meaning. Yea, flesh also of beasts and the fowls of the air, I the Lord have ordained for the use of men with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. And it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or famine.
1: Well, from the inflection, it says he does still want us to be sparing and thanksgiving and appreciative, but not just in winter. It's for all the time.
0: That's right. That's the point. Now, Exactly as to the question about why aren't Mormons vegetarian, we probably do eat a lot of meat as a culture, probably more than we should. I had a hamburger
1: yesterday. Well, I had a steak and it was really
0: good. But um, so the Lord does say we're probably eating too much, but he didn't say that we were not to have any. So,
1: you know, that brings a scripture to mind. I recall a scripture that a uh, time the Lord had said, he who will not eat meat is not of me.
0: The reason that it's not of him, and this is wonderful because you know I love the Old Testament, and so we can slide right into the Old Testament. Thank you for the well, we, segue. Well, we
1: are prepping for Ruth right now, so yes. That is true.
0: The command to eat some meat, albeit sparingly and not necessarily just in the winter, comes from the law given to Noah. After the ark settled and the world was changed and Noah left the ark, he discovered that the world was different.
1: I would say probably muddy and not covered in vegetation anymore.
0: Well, that's true. And certainly the atmosphere was different. We know from uh, the geological evidence that things had changed. We can see it in the fossil record Mm -hmm. and in some of the things that get dug out of the earth. So we know that the earth had changed. We also noticed that the animals are a little smaller. We're finding the skeletons of these enormous turtles and huge birds and these large, large creatures and there was even talk in the scriptures about man being bigger, being giants. And then we come after the flood and we see that everything, you know, we don't have the dire wolves that we used to have. And we don't well, have the, the
1: massive mastodons. You know, they find these enormous fish that we have versions of now. Genetically, they're the same, same shark.
0: They're the same turtle. But one is enormous. And they're just much smaller. It's true. It's because the atmosphere changed. And so one of the things that had to change was the way human beings needed to survive. And so the Lord actually gave the law of meat-eating to Noah. But of interest, he told him that they were not to eat the meat with the blood in it. Okay. Which is very fascinating. We know that there's a lot of blood drinking that goes on on this planet. And we're discovering it more and more in some of the tales of Satanism that are going on, that the drinking of blood. The Lord commanded that the blood be taken out of the animals and that, that the meat could then be eaten.
1: Okay, so with this new new command to Noah... Uh, is this in any way related to kosher laws?
0: Oh, thank you for asking me that. The kosher laws are in some ways very much like what we see with the Word of Wisdom. The original kosher laws were basically very simple. What the Lord told Moses is that they were not to take a young animal and cook it in its own mother's milk and eat it. That was not to happen anymore. It was part of the pagan and Luciferian tradition you would take a baby animal from its mother particularly like a calf and you'd milk the cow and then you would cook that cow's baby calf in her milk and eat it while you danced to bow
1: it was part yeah it was part of their mysticism of renewed life and all this nonsense but it was something that they were kind of doing as mockery to the lord
0: he didn't like it he didn't like it he didn't like it for the way it made the animal feel i'm sure and he didn't like the fact that it was being done in in honor of lucifer so he commanded that they would not do that anymore so basically, it's not a completely 100% true, but basically, in order to make sure that never happened, later Jews wrote an entire series of food laws to guarantee that they would never accidentally eat a baby in its mother's milk.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's being overprotective. So they, they obviously still wanted to honor the rule, but they went beyond the mark.
0: Way beyond it. You can think of it a little bit this way. The Jews had their standard text, which was the Word of God, You could see it a little bit like in our church. We have the Book of Mormon. We, of course, have the Holy Bible. And we have the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Those came from God. As a body of Christ, we have accepted these as the word of the Lord. They are the standard works. The Jews had this too. They had their Law and the Prophets, uh, which we call the Old Testament today. That was God's word. And then they had the Talmud.
1: Oh, would you mind explaining that to those that don't understand?
0: Sure. They had a bunch of policies and other wise instructions that were given to the people that weren't really voted on or really accepted by the people, but was sort of like a handbook of instruction to to help the people run the day-to-day policies. So you had the standards that were the word of the Lord, and then you had the the policies that was sort of like their handbook of instruction.
1: Just to sort of help them follow the word
0: of the Lord. So it was supposed to be there to assist. Yes, but it became the law of the people. Oh. And this is what was so hard on the Lord, because when he came, it was the Talmud, and it was these writings of the elders that they would throw in his face. So he would be out preaching, and he would reach over and get some grain, and he would eat it, and the disciples would eat it, because they were famished, and they would do it on a Sunday. Well, that was working.
1: Yeah. And they'd they'd harvested something and they shouldn't have. And that's against the the...
0: policy. Mm. It was never in the scriptures. And so the Lord had a real hard time with this. Very often when he would yell at them, he would say, you don't even know the law, meaning the scriptures. So you can see it a little bit like the standard works of the church. And then we have our handbook of instruction that is not voted on and changes all the time. It's always changing. And it's sometimes gets confused with being the scriptures. And the truth is, whenever in doubt, you have to fall on the scriptures, and it's the same. The Jews got into trouble; they started falling on their Talmud or their handbooks of instruction, and they didn't fall on the scriptures.
1: So they had originally what was given to to Noah, right? Regarding you know the the what they should do, what they should eat, and then additional commands since then. But you're saying in the Talmud. Are there more instructions, things that they've drifted
0: off? All kinds of, of, of writing of what it means. It's a little bit like what's happened to us in some respect. I think that our word of wisdom is probably the closest in similarity. The word of wisdom says that hot drinks aren't for man. But as a policy, we say hot chocolate is okay. And I like hot chocolate, particularly at Christmas time. Oh, well, isn't that hot too? Well, yes, but we've decided that one is okay and one... And I don't know. This is partially why it gets to be so confusing. We have all kinds of little rules that we've put all around this to try and make sense of it. And in doing so, it's kind of become a little bit like our kosher laws.
1: So with that, with understanding of that, both a current problem and anciently, what, what is a direct answer for Moe's question?
0: Well, it's interesting. I believe it was King David who actually, when he was looking over the kosher laws, they asked him some questions. For example, why don't we eat pig? There's nothing wrong with eating pig. And um, David said, well, you are what you eat. And he said, a pig will turn and re-eat its own garbage. It'll re-eat what's come out of another pig. It'll eat anything. But a cow or a sheep is much more particular. It takes clean things in, and it's a clean animal. Pigs take in dirt and become dirt. And so if you eat a pig, you're like a pig, and you'll become like a pig. That was actually what he told the people when they were questioning this. So I think that's really the moral here. And for, for Mohi, I think the answer really is... The Word of Wisdom promises a couple of things that I think are beautiful. One is that it promises the gift of wisdom. It says that you will find great treasures of knowledge because your mind and your body work, and you'll be able to connect more easily with the heavens and be more of a clean vessel, which is exactly what, in a sense, we're doing with the gospel feasts. We're trying to expand our learning and gain wisdom and gain knowledge and gain precious truths.
1: And we need to have a functioning vessel to hold on to those things. We do.
0: And I had a a sage in the church one time, an older gentleman, when we were talking about these things years ago. He said, you know, I'm not the same man now in my older years that I was in my youth. And if I had died in my youth and had gone before the Lord with all of my anger, with all of my wit, with all of my testosterone, with all of that stuff, he said, I tremble to think now what I would have said.
1: Oh, or, or how the Lord would have responded to such brash sedotio in his face.
0: <laughs> well, he he was interesting because he said now that he'd aged, he said he'd had a time to repent, a time to reflect, a time to spend his life preparing to meet God. So to a large extent, the word of wisdom buys you time to actually prepare to meet him because you're going to have to. If you don't show up and storm the gates and go there with the sort of, you know, testosterone that you might, but show up with the humility— you may very well find that you're grateful for the experience and happy happy to see the Lord as opposed to coming with your list of questions. In fact, it's interesting you say, I remember I used to have a list of questions. I thought, when I meet God, I'm going to ask him this and this and this and this. And the big one on the list was, why did you make mosquitoes? You know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and thorns and thistles and trials. <laughs> well, mosquitoes was on my list, you know. And I remember hearing President Monson make a really interesting statement that I really appreciated. Someone asked him, What are you going to ask the Lord when you see him? And President Monson said, I'm not going to ask him anything. I'm going to shut my mouth and listen to what he has to say.
1: That is wise counsel.
0: I thought it was brilliant. You know, all of us are going to tell God what to do. You know, we all counsel the Lord and we're waiting for him to come so desperately. And are we going to listen or are we going to counsel him? You know, we should counsel with him or more specifically, listen to his counsel. But we busily counsel him too often. The other one that I thought was really brilliant, is the Word of Wisdom really ultimately is about addictions. Interesting. The Lord doesn't want us to be addicted to anything because an addict is a
1: slave. Well, and and easy to manipulate. Easy to manipulate. And open to temptation to, if one addiction is there, perhaps another can be fallen into.
0: Well, I think the bigger point is that if he has set you free, then going back into an addiction is kind of a mockery. The Lord has made us free. And the things in the Word of Wisdom, if we'll follow them, free us temporally, as he said. But we all know that those that are free temporally are also free spiritually to make their own choices.
1: Okay, so we have time for one more. Uh, Yoshi from Cairo asks, Reed, would you help us with some of the sources you use in your gospel studies?
0: Oh, wow. And Cairo?
1: Yes. Cairo and
0: India. (laughs)
1: Uh, English is a second language for many people, and we appreciate them taking the time to listen and learn. Our author and historian is actually learning French at this moment. So kudos to all of you multilingual people out there. Bonjour. So uh, Yoshi is curious, where do we go to get help studying the scriptures as you have?
0: Well, gosh, I hope that
1: they would go to the Gospel Feast series. Well, obviously. I and mean, this is a lot of, you know, this is decades in the making on your part. That's true. So to help people preserve their... that much time. Yes, uh, the Gospel Fee series, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I recommend it to everyone. But for those that are on their own quest as well, where do they go? What do they search out?
0: Well, I can tell you, honestly, my favorite researchers come from England. Interesting. And from the period, I'm going to say approximately 1830 to approximately 1870, give or take.
1: Well, that's that's a—I don't doubt it, but what makes that time period unique for gospel study?
0: Well, I appreciate it. Actually, it's Charles Darwin. Uh, The antithesis Antithesis of religion. Uh, You know that I have no fan of Charles Darwin. I actually think he was a small-minded moron. But to not offend everyone who has been indoctrinated into Darwinism, let me say that when Darwin's philosophies and theories hit England, it was like a rocket. It was a disaster. And he very quickly started to Bring around the young people over to his way of thinking. And they rather rapidly started abandoning decades and millennia and centuries and whatever order that should have been in of incredible knowledge. Oh,
1: interesting. It was the new flavor of the month, and so everybody was jumping on board. But at the same time, what does that mean to the note, like you said, the century's worth of knowledge? What happens to it?
0: There were great, great minds in England that were Christian, and they were fluent in the classics, they knew Hebrew they knew Greek, they knew Latin, of course they knew French, and they were alarmed that these kids, the youth, were throwing away tremendous amounts of knowledge just because Darwin came along and said, hey, you used to be a monkey that used to be a banana that used to be a rock.
1: And so they saw this happening to their culture. They saw they their did. culture
0: changing in their very faces. They did. They and did. what was their response? They trembled that knowledge that had come down from the ancients would be lost. And so they started writing books and tracts and various volumes of knowledge to try and preserve it before it was gone. Okay, so things that were common
1: knowledge to them, they knew wouldn't be in a very short amount of time. Well, it's not today.
0: Oh, Most people are shocked when I say, if you want to learn about the depth of Christianity and some of the great stuff, go to the English and look from 1830 to 1870. They say, I'm shocked. Why? Well, now that makes perfect sense. If that's when the
1: people... And if they were that multilingual. They had read the scriptures in Hebrew, English, German. They would have probably a better understanding of what the words actually meant as they'd been translated various times. And then, as you said, have the benefit of so much writing through history that had been done. And all of that was just going to disappear because a guy saw, you know, a, a bird that ate a seed and a bird that ate a different seed.
0: Well, that's what bothered them. They felt like that the world was giving away diamonds for lumps of coal. Oh, wow. So these writings, their writings, where are they found? Well, you can get them. A lot of stuff's in the public domain because, you know, it's 1830 to 1870, give or take, and all that stuff is, isn't is copyrighted anymore. A perfect example to start would be, get your hands on, and I've mentioned this book before, Sir Robert Anderson's The Coming Prince. Oh, yes. That's a perfect example of a very intelligent Brit who, using math and knowledge, was able to show that Jesus indeed was the Christ from Daniel and using mathematical texts that dealt with Sir Isaac Newton. Another one, uh, Alexander Hyssop's The Two Babylons, an unbelievable book. When you read that, you feel like you're reading Nibley on Fire. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you again all for your questions,
1: and we are still busily working to prepare for Season 3 on the Book of Ruth. We encourage everyone to get themselves a copy. Remember, it's also free on Kindle Unlimited. And until then... (laughs)